Well, good morning. My name is Chad Gilbert. I have the great joy of serving as the senior pastor here at First Baptist New Orleans. And I'm excited today to introduce to you a dear friend and brother, one who has served as a pastor here in this church, uh, Dr. Corey Barnes, who's a professor of Old Testament um, over at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, um, who's been a member of this church since he and his family moved back to New Orleans, and who dearly loves you. Um, the reason he's preaching this morning is at the encouragement of good friends in this faith family. Um, I've spent the week with my family. Uh, my mom has gone through a, a real health crisis and remains in the ICU. And we've come back today. Today is uh, going to be the 13th birthday for my oldest son, Grayson. And so we're back for that. But um, there's no other place we'd rather be on a Sunday morning than with our faith family. Um, so thank you for your love and support for us during this time. And I'm so thankful because I have a needy heart just like you, especially during this time. Um, and so I look forward to being nourished in a way that only God can um, from his word. And so, Corey, if you will come and join us, brother, I want to pray for you um, as we begin this morning. Father, I thank you so much for Corey. I pray for him, God, as he preaches your word. Um, God, that you would fill him fresh with your Holy Spirit and you would speak to us, God. We thank you for the grace, God, the grace that you show. Thank you for the grace that was at work in those moments through the angel Gabriel, your messenger to Mary. And I pray, Father, for that same heart of response in every one of us, um, that I am the Lord's servant. May it be to us, God, today, according to your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks, Chad. Good morning, First Baptist New Orleans. It's a blessing to get to be here this morning. Um, one of the things about just the season of ministry that, that the Lord has placed me in is that uh, I uh, treasure getting to, to worship with you whenever I'm here. I'm here a lot, but not as much as I would like to be because of other uh, ministry opportunities um, that First Baptist supports my family and I in. Um, but, uh, but it's also a special blessing to get to come and preach at the church where I'm a member. Let me just tell you something about preaching. Preaching can easily feel like a performance. It's one of those things that one of the dangerous parts of it is, is that you can, you can kind of get good at sounding good. There's a lot of reasons for that, most of which are just because of the sinfulness of my own heart. But one of the things that I find to just, just be the most organic way to preach is whenever I'm preaching with the people with whom I'm in a covenant relationship as a church family. It's a special blessing to be able to come and to preach to First Baptist New Orleans and lead in a time of the word. We're gonna continue our time in Luke this morning. We're in Luke, we're gonna be in chapter one. We're gonna start in verse 26. We're gonna go through verse 38. Chad has set us up for this last week as Chad began to walk through the book of Luke. And if you, you weren't here last week and have not heard the sermon, then Chad told us last week that we were gonna begin walking through the book of Luke for a, a long period of time. We'll be going in and out of the gospel to some other passages um, but last week, he set us up to begin realizing that, that the first story in Luke's gospel, which is a story about Elizabeth and Zechariah, and especially about Zechariah and the announcement of John the Baptist, is connected to this story. So we're going to see a lot of those connections. Before we start in our passage, let me just encourage us as members of our church to, to know about a resource that we have, especially as we're at the beginning of a series like this one. So like I said, I, because of just some, some ministry opportunities, am not always able to be present at First Baptist. And so one of the things that I'm very thankful for is that we have a, a team here at FBNO that makes sure that we have recordings of our entire service and also in particular our sermons 
that are posted online. That means that I get to follow along with the whole series. So let me encourage you, if you didn't hear Chad's sermon from last week, to go back and listen to that. And let me encourage you that, that if at all possible to be present with the people of God, but if another commitment as you follow the Lord draws you outside of the body on Sunday morning, you can still follow through the entirety of the teaching through the book of Luke and other passages that Chad and our other pastors lead us through. Let's look at the the book of Luke this morning. Let me start with just two things that Chad reminded us of last week to be on the lookout for as we go through the book of Luke. Here's number one. That is to be on the lookout for fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and expectations in the book of Luke. He reminded us that Luke chapter one, verse one, that Luke is going to say, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, he's gonna go on to say, that's what he's doing. He's saying, this is these things that are being accomplished, they're being fulfilled because they're being fulfilled from expectations and prophecies from the Old Testament. We're gonna keep a lookout for that throughout Luke. We're gonna need to keep a lookout for that this morning. Another thing that Chad reminded us of is to to be on the lookout to see the truthfulness of Luke's account. Simply put, Luke is writing down what really happened based on eyewitness accounts that he as a believing historian is going and gathering. We see this in Luke chapter one, verse three, where he says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you. Most excellent, Theophilus, the the audience of Luke's book. An orderly account. These are things that actually happen. And I want us to to be mindful of that as we go into this passage. Before we read the passage together, let, let me just warn us also in this passage in particular of two dangers that I think are lurking in a passage like this one. Here's danger number one. We can romanticize stories like this at the expense of what the word actually says. Let let me tell you two ways this can happen. One, this is a passage about Mary. And we're going to find that actually there's some tradition that if if you're familiar, you come from a Roman Catholic background, that a lot of what Roman Catholicism teaches about Mary, there's, there's some language that comes from this passage. Now, let me just say something, especially if you're early in visiting First Baptist New Orleans, let me, let me just tell you guys something about our disposition towards Roman Catholicism. It is not a, a goal of First Baptist New Orleans to see Catholics become Baptists. You can look at what we believe. We're not saying anything about that. Our goal is to be a scripture-fed church. So here's the only reason I bring this up. I want us to put ourselves in a position of submission to the word of God this morning. And instead of romanticizing a tradition about Mary or any other tradition, then we would say, we just wanna believe what the word says. Simply put, we want to believe what God's word says, not what traditions we might believe about the word of God hold to. The second way we can romanticize this passage, this is a passage that has a lot to do with the Christmas story. And we're going to move in a direction as we walk through this passage to really be challenged as a people. How should this impact our celebration of Christmas? One of the things that I want to challenge us with is that a lot of times at Christmas, we can read over stories like these and we can connect them with traditions. We can connect them with times that we've heard this passage in church around Christmas time or at family gatherings and never pause to say, what is God actually saying? So danger number one, we can romanticize passages like this at the expense of understanding what God is really saying. But here's the second danger. This is also a passage 
that gets very theological. This is a passage that is explicitly talking about the virgin birth and is explicitly talking about incarnation. Now, now let me just admonish us, brothers and sisters. We as God's people should enjoy and delight in dwelling deeply on the truths of the things of God, on the truths of scripture. But here's the danger. We can study the doctrine in this passage without the truth of scripture moving us to obedience. In other words, our goal at the end of this passage is not ultimately to be theologians. Our goal at the end of this passage is to be theologians for the sake of being better servants and better sons and daughters of the most high God. That's our goal in this passage. So with those two things in mind, let's go to Luke chapter one. Let's start in verse 26. Let's read through to verse 38. And if you will, please stand for the reading of God's word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be? since I'm a virgin. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Father, this morning, as we spend time in your word, remind us that it is your word that is perfect and authoritative and true. It is your word by which you speak to us the words of life. So Father, let us delight in it. Father, also remind us that my words come from the lips of a sinful man. So if I say anything, intentionally or unintentionally, that's out of step with what your word reveals. Father God, I pray that you would be gracious and that as the Holy Spirit moves among believers in this church, that you would drive them to see the truth of your word. And if I've said anything in error, then my sisters and brothers would be gracious to me by confronting me with my error. And Father God, that you would lead me in repentance first before you and then before First Baptist New Orleans so that Father, we may move forward in purity of doctrine, not so that we would be puffed up but instead that we would worship you in spirit and in truth and in our worship, proclaim the true gospel to New Orleans and to the nations. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, amen. You can be seated. Let's look at a couple of things about this passage before we go. The, here's what we're gonna do in this passage is just move through kind of verse by verse in three stages. As we go into it, let me point out two things that we're going to need to be aware of, connections to other types of passages, because I want us to see the sort of thing going on in this passage. Chad mentioned last week that this is in a period of time where, where it seems that revelation from God is just dried up. We've not seen the same movements of God in recent history that we saw 
all throughout the Old Testament time. And then as we read early in Luke, the Lord begins to speak and show signs to Zechariah. The Lord is moving again. And these birth announcements, like we see in the story of Zechariah and the announcement of John the Baptist, or we see here in the announcement of the birth of Jesus, these birth announcements remind us of other Old Testament passages. They remind us of passages like Genesis chapter 17, where the birth of Isaac is announced. They remind us of passages like Judges chapter 13, where the birth of Samuel is announced. As we'll see, there's a strong tie to Isaiah chapter seven through nine, where the birth of Emmanuel is announced. So what we see just by the very fact that God is saying these children are going to be born is all of a sudden, as people who have read the Old Testament, people in this time would have been saying, this is like what's happened before. God is on the move again. This passage has some specific ties to the passage that we read last week as we considered, especially in uh, Luke chapter one, verses five through 25, the announcement of John the Baptist's birth. Both announcements are made by angels. Both announcements are made to people you would not expect to have children, an elderly couple and now a virgin. Both show that God is working among his people like he did in Old Testament times. So here's the point for us. As we walk through this passage, we're supposed to immediately say, buckle up and get ready because God is at work in a mighty way. And as we walk through the passage, we're going to see that not only is he at work like he was before, but he is also at work to a magnitude that we have never seen before. That's what we need to look at as we go through this passage. So here's the first block of verses I want us to look at. Look with me at verses 26 through 30. And here's kind of just the focal topic of these verses. Look at how these verses describe a favored woman, a favored woman. Look at these verses with me. Our story starts off in the last place and the most unlikely way that we would expect. First of all, it starts off in Nazareth, we find out in verse 26. Nazareth is not a big or important place. You wanna see that come out in the text of scripture? Look at John chapter one, verse 46, where whenever Philip tells his brother Nathaniel about Jesus, Nathaniel's response is simply going to be, you say it's from Nazareth, Phil, can anything good come out of Nazareth? There's, there's no Old Testament prophecies about Nazareth. Now, we're gonna see in Luke's gospel that Luke is going to tell us that, that actually these people, Joseph and Mary, are going to end up in a place that's very central to Old Testament prophecy in Bethlehem. But right now they're in Nazareth and that's going to be after they flee from Herod and then come back into uh, the, the promised land. We're going to see that they settle down once again in their original hometown of Nazareth. Another thing that here that we don't expect, this is in a place we wouldn't expect, it's to a person we don't expect. Look at how this is, is introduced. Here we have in verse 27, who does this angel come to? To a, a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. To a virgin. Here we have a woman that, that is given a birth announcement who is a, a virgin. There's, there's no real debate about what Luke means in this passage. I just wanna be clear on that. If, if you look later on at Luke chapter one, verse 34 in this passage, we read it just a moment ago. And if you have the, the CSB or the King James version, this is gonna be even clearer because in that passage, in the original language, what Luke says is that in, in verse 34 is going to be that Mary is gonna say, how can this be since I have never had sexual relations with a man? 
very explicit about what's going on here. She is a virgin. She is not the sort of person who biologically could have a child. In fact, as Gabriel is going to point out, if this was any other circumstance, we would say it's impossible that she would have a child, which by the way, is the exact point that God is making as we walk through this passage. Verse 27, we find that Mary is betrothed to Joseph. This is common in this time, in the first century, for betrothal to happen in this way. And I don't want us to, to spend a lot of time here, but, but just for clarity. So as we're in this season of thinking through various parts of the gospels and the Christmas story, I, I just want us to explain a couple of things so we see what's going on in the text. Betrothal was this period where the, the two families made an arrangement that a man and a woman were going to be married. Now, this could happen sometimes a year or more before the actual marriage ceremony and consummation of the marriage took place. And in that way, we might say, oh, it's like an engagement. Well, it's, it's sort of like an engagement. The difference is, is it is as fully legally binding as a marriage. And here's why I bring it up. Because that's the reason that if you go over to Matthew and you read Matthew chapter one, verse 19, Joseph, when he finds out about these things that Mary is with child before he himself is given a vision from an angel, he's going to say being a, a noble man that he wants to divorce her quietly. So in other words, it is a legal arrangement that would have to be broken. To this unlikely woman, Gabriel speaks a greeting filled with a message of God's grace. Look with me at verse 28, and let's, let's really get into what's going on with Mary here. And how is it that God is drawing our focus? Remember, that, that's our goal. Our goal is not to prop up our own theological tradition. Our goal is simply to say, God, you by grace are speaking to us in your word. What do you want us to focus on? Well, let's look at, at the focus here. As we look at verse 28, Gabriel comes to Mary and he said to her, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Your Bible might say there, greetings, O highly favored one. Either translation, perfectly acceptable. And then he's gonna say, look at verse 30, as Mary begins to wrestle with what type of greeting this is, he's going to say again, you have found favor with God in verse 30. The word favor in both verses is the word we translate as grace. And I want us to talk about what this means. Just really quickly before we do that, if you are reading in the King James Version, you might also see that there's an additional tagline here that, that the King James Version is gonna have at the end of verse 28, blessed are thou among women. Uh, if, if you have any questions about why that would be in some versions and not others, let me just encourage you not to let that fester within you. Come talk to our pastors, talk to Pastor Gary, talk to Pastor Chad. They'd love to talk with you guys about this. I will just tell you, when you see those things, should not cause any doubt in the scripture. That's clearly true of Mary. Why? Because in all the versions, look at chapter one, verse 43, which says the exact same thing. As we move forward, let's, let's figure out this. I wanna ask a question. What's so great about Mary? What's so great about Mary? What's this passage telling us? This, by the way, this passage is the origin of the Roman Catholic Hail Mary prayer. So if you grew up in a Catholic background and you grew up praying Hail Mary full of grace, this is actually the passage of scripture that that prayer is trying to allude to. Let me tell you what I think the passage is focusing on here though. Look, look, and we'll, we'll see it if we look clearly at, at, at Mary's response to Gabriel's greeting. Look at verse 29. But by the way, if, if the point of this was, Mary was, had more grace in her because of her goodness than any other person, 
we would expect Mary to answer Gabriel with something like, hey, Gabriel, I've been waiting on you. I know that God's filled me up with special stuff more than any other person. It's good that you've showed up so I can see what God's going to do with this special position he's put me in. But look at verse 29. In verse 29, she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Mary's confusion over what's happening here is because Mary understands what this means. This this does not mean that Mary inherently because of her goodness or virtue or, or, or greater value than any other person has more grace because of who she is. That's not what favor is. That's not what grace is. What's happening here is that Mary has been shown an extraordinary favor from the Lord, an extraordinary amount of favor from the Lord. I remember whenever I was a kid, I was, I, I grew up and, and my, my parents were, were good and kind to me. But I will tell you, when we did things like go to the movies, we did not buy drinks and popcorn because my, my parents would tell us, Orville Redenbacher will sell us a bag of popcorn for 20 cents. We're not paying nine bucks for a bucket of popcorn. We didn't do that. That was about just my parents' convictions. It was also just about where we were socioeconomically. I remember going whenever I was a kid, I was 11 years old. There was a local businessman in town and he had sponsored the baseball team that I played for. And he decided that he wanted to take the entire baseball team to see an Auburn baseball game. Now, listen, obviously he's not discerning in his selection of college football franchises to support. And I understand that, (laughs) but took us to an Auburn Tigers baseball game and we had a blast. And that guy let us get whatever we wanted. Go to the concession stand, get whatever you want. Wanted to get all of us an Auburn Tigers hat. He was just pouring out this favor on us. And I just want to tell you, whenever I came back home with my Auburn Tigers hat and, and, a, and, and a belly full of overpriced concession items, talking about how much fun this had been and how we had stopped at Wendy's on the way back. And this guy let me get a Frosty. I didn't even know Wendy sold ice cream. Nobody in my family said, you must be great because you got all that stuff. Instead, they said, Mr. Harry must be a very generous man. If we read this rightly, we do not come away from it saying, Mary must have been wonderful. We instead say, God must be wonderful if he pours out this type of favor. That's the focus of the passage. Chad reminded us of this last week whenever he was looking at Zechariah and the favor that's poured out on Zechariah. And that is this fact, sisters and brothers. That is that grace, God's grace gets the glory, not the recipients of God's grace. Look at how Mary's going to answer this. First of all, I do just want to be clear on this. Mary's answer is special. Here's the other thing that can happen with Mary, especially with Protestants, especially if you live in a city like New Orleans, where if if we see this in the wrong way, we can feel like an us versus them type thing. All we should care about again is what does the Bible say? Here's something that we can get wrong about the way that we look at Mary is we can look at Mary and we can fail to uplift the virtues of Mary as presented in the text. I do wanna say this, remember as you looked in Luke chapter one, verses five through 25, and we saw Zechariah, remember he's he's a wise old priest. And he's been faithful before the Lord. He's actually the kind of guy that you would expect if God's gonna show up, he's gonna be ready for it. But if you look back at that story, when the angel shows up to Zechariah, do you know what he was trembling over? 
He was trembling over the appearance of the angel. He was trembling in fear over the fact that an angel had showed up. We see Mary display a, a bravery here and a comfort with the presence of the Lord that is rare in scripture. You wanna know what troubles her? What troubles Mary is not that an angel has showed up. What troubles Mary, she said, why would you say such wonderful things about me? As we move towards application of this, sisters and brothers, I want us to let that stick with us. Because I will tell you that if we are to be faithful to the words of scripture, I do not think that we are going to pray to Mary, but I do wanna pray like Mary. I do not think that Mary is the queen of heaven. Nothing in this word tells me that she is, but I think that everything I see in the word tells me that Mary is in heaven, delighting in the presence of God because that's all I ever see her do in scripture. So while we are not going to uplift her beyond what the text does, we're going to uplift Mary like the text does. And what we see here is this picture of a faithful woman. The centerpiece of these verses is the grace of God not the grace of Mary. And as Chad reminded us last week, it's another reminder to us, it is always God's grace that gets the glory. Second set of verses I want us to look at. So we see here a highly favored woman. Here's the next thing we're going to see. Right at the middle of this passage, a long expected child, a long expected child. Look with me at verses 31 through 33. As you're looking at them, let me just tell you about two Old Testament passages. And let me challenge you. If you're, if you're taking notes, just write these passages down. The first passage is 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 17. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 17. And in that passage, David receives a promise. And, and it's a promise that a son of David in verse nine of that passage will be given a great name. That verse 13, he's going to inherit the throne over God's people. Verse 14, he's gonna be called God's son. And verse 16, he's gonna rule an everlasting kingdom. That's an Old Testament promise. And at this point in the history of God's people, it has been just shy of a thousand years since that promise was made. And they've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting on a king like that. And this passage, full of that language. Here's the other passage I would encourage you to look at. It's a long one. Isaiah, start in chapter six, read through verse nine. Start in chapter six, read through verse nine. Let me just tell you as you're reading that, that that's the Emmanuel prophecy. And the Emmanuel prophecy comes up and, and starts in, in chapter seven. And, and, it, and it flows out of this powerful temple vision that Isaiah receives. In, in chapter seven, we have the Emmanuel prophecy. And I'm gonna just tell you guys that if you read that, you're gonna see that, that there's a sense of which that Emmanuel prophecy, that there's a, a child born right there in Isaiah, that we would think maybe that's just the only fulfillment of this prophecy, that a child's going to be born that's a sign that God is with us, Emmanuel. But then you read through and by the time you get to chapter nine, you find that there is going to be a, a child born and unto us a son given and the government is going to be upon his shoulders and his name is going to be almighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And you say, wait a minute, there's more to this Emmanuel thing happening. This passage is full of 2 Samuel chapter seven language, the king has come. And it is full of Isaiah seven and nine language. Emmanuel in his fullness is now going to be a part of us. So remember those passages. Here's what we're gonna see here. Look, look at what's happening. First, 
we're going to see that Mary is going to become pregnant. So we're looking at this. This is whenever we get to verse 32. So I'm sorry, verse 31. Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Matthew chapter one, when the angel explains this to Joseph, he says explicitly why he is to call his name Jesus. It's because he's gonna save his people from their sins. Jesus means the Lord saves. So again, like the Old Testament, you have this child, it's announced he's going to be born and his name means something connected to what God is going to do. Look at verse 32. Not only is she going to conceive and have a son, this son is going to be called the son of the most high. Once again, I just want us to think Old Testament here. That, that word, the most high, that's a, that's a very Old Testament word. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 14, whenever we find this strange man, Melchizedek, who's a priest that Abraham is going to, to bring tithes to. And, and the way that the Bible tells us that he's a priest of the true God is it says, he is a priest to God most high. Exact same word here. God most high, the God that is above all spiritual and physical things. This child to be born of Mary is going to be the son of the most high God that we've seen lifted up throughout the Old Testament. I wanna be clear here with something. This is one of those just theological moments. We need tremendous clarity on this. This does not mean that whenever Jesus is born, he will become God's son. If we read the Bible, John 1 shows us this very clearly. Jesus has always been the son of the father. He's the eternal word. The, the point here is that he will be called the son of the most high. It's not that he changes, it's that in his incarnation, we all get to call him what he's been all along. You wanna see grace poured out? The grace poured out here is this isn't something God's keeping to himself. God through Jesus is gonna reveal his fullness to us and pull us through Jesus into a relationship with him. What God has always intended to happen is now coming to us and we will be able to call God who he really is. The Lord will give him, we are told, the throne of his father, David. Sister and brother, just simply put, this is the absolute clearest way for anybody talking to folks who have read the Old Testament to say, this is the Messiah. He's gonna be given the throne of his father, David. You've been waiting on a king that was like David, but better. You've been waiting on the son of David whose reign is never gonna end. You've been waiting on the son of David who is the son of God. You've been waiting on the son that we looked at in Psalms 2 that's going to have the nations in his inheritance and the ends of the earth is his possession. You've been waiting on the one that's gonna punish the wicked and in whom the righteous are gonna seek refuge. This is that child. This is the Messiah. So important with us as we think about Christmas, that's the core of the celebration. That is. Everything else is just culture. It's not bad. But if you go to Mozambique, if you go to Ethiopia, if you go to China, if you go to Russia, if you go to Ukraine, they're going to celebrate Christmas and it might have none of our cultural trappings, but the core of the celebration will be unchanged. What we as Christians are really celebrating is that God himself, who is the King who's gonna fulfill all the good promises of the Old Testament has come to us. Luke here is getting us ready to see what it really means to be a part of God's people, to be one who professes Jesus as King. I, I wanna just point something out here before we move on to this last block of text. Look at verse 33. 
He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. What do we make of that reign over the house of Jacob part? Let me just tell you this. We see this throughout the New Testament. We see this in Jesus's ministry. We see this in, in a special way in Paul's letters. You could look at Romans chapter 11. You could look at Ephesians chapter six. The house of Jacob is a very clear reference to God's people. God's people will, will be marked because this one will be their king. That's what it will mean, that what it does mean to be a part of God's people. What the New Testament makes very clear for us is this is not something that we can look back and say, oh, Jesus is the king of Jewish people because actually his whole ministry is not about being king over people who live within a certain geographical region. It's not about him being king over people who share a particular ethnic background. He is going to be the king over all those who through his grace confess and profess him as their king. Here's why I'm telling you this. You wanna know whether you're a part of God's people? One thing matters. Is this child whose birth is announced in Luke chapter one, is he your king? You wanna know if you're really celebrating Christmas? Are you celebrating because your king through his grace and his love for you and his mission to glorify the father, are you celebrating because he has come? Or have you let lesser things weasel their way into your priorities and the celebration? Let's look at the last thing in this passage. See a highly favored woman we see a long expected child. Lastly here, we see a promise of God's presence. Mary asked the question that if we were reading this for the first time would be on all of our minds. Wait a minute, Gabriel. I have never been with a man. Mary is a virgin. How will she conceive? Look at Gabriel's answer. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, a child will be born and he will be called holy, the son of God. What, what's Luke's point here? Why does the virgin birth matter? I'll tell you this. It's easy for Christians. And there have been unfortunate periods throughout the history of the church and unfortunate groups throughout the history of the church that have seen this as a liability. They've seen this as something that said, people are, people are not gonna buy into this. L let me just tell you something. If you're here this morning and, and, and Chad has really been trying to focus our church on this, we really want to think through and, and, and be aware of the fact that some folks that are here this morning, you're, you're curious about who God is. You've, you've heard about God, heard about scripture, you've heard about the gospel and, and you're here because you're curiously seeking. Okay, I, I wanna know more about who God is. I wanna know more about what he does. I just wanna invite you to see this the gospel that we proclaim from this word, the gospel that drives what we do at First Baptist New Orleans is a supernatural thing. None of this is rational. We understand it's foolishness to the world. We understand that. This is not a liability to us. This is a part of the supernatural message of grace that we proclaim. Why does Luke focus on it? Reason number one, because it happened. Because it happened. Luke chapter one, verses three through four. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some times past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Why does Luke record the virgin birth? Because the virgin birth happened because it is true. It's not something that's made up to prove other things. This is how God works. 
And he enters into history. He becomes incarnate. He becomes a person as we are people through the virgin birth. Why does he focus on it? Because it happens. Why does the virgin birth matter? Second, to make crystal clear that none of this is a metaphor. Look at the second part of verse 35. Why is this gonna happen? Why will the Holy Spirit come upon her? Why will the Holy Spirit overshadow her? Because it's going to show that the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. Listen, we can sometimes talk about ourselves and rightly so, scripture does, as the sons and daughters of God, that he has brought us into his family, that he loves us as a father. It, it would, if, if it were not for this passage, we might have to ask the question, okay, is Luke saying that Jesus is the son of God in the same way that I might call myself the son of God? No, he is not. This is not a metaphor. This is actually what is happening. This is actually God's son. Why does Luke focus on this? Because without incarnation, there is no gospel. Without incarnation, there is no gospel. But as soon as the incarnation occurs, the gospel can be proclaimed. You want me to tell you the first gospel message that we see in scripture? We're gonna read about it later. We're gonna, we're gonna read about it as Chad continues to lead us through the gospel of Luke. We're gonna read about it, many of us with our families through Christmas. It happens in fields outside of Bethlehem and it's told to shepherds by angels. And you know the words. The angels say, the first angel says, I bring you good tidings. He says, I gospelize to you. Good tidings is the word from which we get gospel. The word is evangel, it's the gospel. They, they evangelize those shepherds. And what do they say? God has come for you. He's come to you. And he is in a manger in Bethlehem and you receive this good news as an invitation to go and to worship him. Why does Luke focus on the virgin birth? Because without the virgin birth, there is no good news that God himself has come. And if God himself has not come, then the sacrifice of Jesus does not lead to resurrection. It would lead to death like the death of any other man. But when you try to kill the son of God, then the power of God has full victory over death and he is raised up to life. And we have life in him, forgiveness of our sins and are raised to walk in newness of life. That's why Luke focuses on the virgin birth. Mary doesn't ask for a sign for any of this, but Gabriel offers one. We come to the end of this passage Gabriel says, Mary, you might be wondering, can God do this? And if you are, hear this. Elizabeth, your relative, has become pregnant with a son in her old age. She's going to have a son, Mary. She who is called barren. She who the community had passed on and said, she's going to die childless. She's had a son. God's at work. For nothing, verse 37, will be impossible with God. And here is faithful Mary's response. Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I want us to make two points of application as we come to a close here. Here's the first one. What do we learn from Mary? What do we learn from Mary here? 
we, again, live in a culture where often we look at Mary and we say, Mary is a great person. But that's not what the text has shown us about Mary. Sisters and brothers, let me say this as we look at Mary. Thinking that we would be great in and of ourselves. In other words, thinking that we would be great because of who I am is anti-Christian. Anti-Christian. Not one of us will be great in and of ourselves. Desiring greatness for self is anti-Christian. What is astounding about Mary is not that she is great, but that she is given grace. So Christian, let me just take two points of application from this. First, if you desire greatness, stop. And, but I want, I want to give you the reason for stopping. Don't stop desiring greatness because I said it was bad. Don't even stop desiring greatness just because you say, I feel guilty about it because I know that's not ultimately what God wants for me. I think that if that's your reason to try to stop desiring greatness, it's going to be very ineffective. Stop desiring greatness and start desiring grace because grace is infinitely better than greatness. Because there's nothing great in you and me, but there is something infinitely great in God and in his grace, which is just favor, goodness that we don't deserve. Through Christ, he gives us his grace. So stop praying and aspiring the anti-Christian thing, Lord, make me great. And instead say, Lord, fill me with your grace. You wanna know if it's working in your life? Ask, are my actions increasingly looking like Mary's actions? Behold, I am not the queen of heaven. Behold, I am not the saint above all saints. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Now listen, I wanna once again just say, I'm not saying that's less than those other things. I'm saying it's more than those other things. I'm saying that if we read the word and we asked Mary, Mary, there are folks here that think you are queen of heaven. Then I really believe that this sister, based on the pages of scripture, would say, no, I'm so much more. I'm the servant of the Lord. Amen. There is no greater title that we will bear. Second point of application for us here as we dwell on this passage. Who and what is the center of Christmas? Who and what? is the center of Christmas. I wanna just push in on a few areas here. I think that, that faithfulness to the scripture really helps us think whenever we think about our personal situation. So let me start with this, kids and students in the room. I'm just gonna address this because this is the stage of life that you guys are in. There can be a temptation in this stage of life that the center of Christmas really does become about material things. And I wanna invite you that once again, making the center of Christmas about material things, is it's not something that we're asking you to feel guilty about. It's not something I think the Bible is just saying you should feel guilty about that. Guilt, guilt's not the purpose. Purpose is there's a better celebration that if you're thinking about gifts this time of year, you're missing, you're missing. The center of Christmas is to say that Jesus has come and he's come to be your king and he's come to be my king. It's easy for us to get caught up in this. And I just want to tell you guys, if, if that's you, don't feel like that's, that's something that's like, like you're alone and heinous in your sin. It's just this stage of life. It doesn't entirely go away into adulthood. The point is, 
there is a better celebration to be had. So see those things as good things and symbol of the fact that folks love you. See them most of all as a symbol of the fact that the greatest gift of all has been given in Christ, but be able to say, I could put all of these things aside and my celebration of Christmas, both now and for the rest of my life would not be diminished at all because what Christmas is really about is that Jesus has come. Parents, grandparents, it can be very easy that this time of year, we make the center of the celebration of Christmas, giving gifts to our children. I, I pick at my kids. Whenever they're opening presents, I'm always just really upfront with them. They're like, hey, listen, you need to remember, like presents cost a lot of money, right? Keep in mind. It can be very easy for us this time of year to just put all the focus on the experience that kids have. It's a wonderful thing to watch kids celebrate Christmas. It's a wonderful thing to watch them open gifts. It's a wonderful thing to maintain traditions. I'm not saying we have to abandon those things. I think we have to see those things in their appropriate place. Are we discipling our children and our grandchildren in such a way that they see that the ultimate celebration of the season is that their king has come to be with them? God has come to reign over them. He's come to call them into his kingdom. Is that our central celebration of Christmas? Or have we instead taken our children and our traditions and made them into idols that are distracting from the true purpose of what we're supposed to be doing this time of year? Uh, business folks in the room, I am thankful that this is a time of year of charitable giving. I really am. I'm thankful for the good work that happens in the church and outside of the church with, with people that look at this time of year and they say, out of the spirit of the season, we need to be generous. There is a way for that to profoundly be connected to your, your, your service as a member of Jesus's kingdom. There's also a way to make that what Christmas is about. I'll just tell you in this culture, it's a very easy thing to do, very acceptable thing to do, to say giving is the reason for the season. It's not. Jesus is the center of Christmas because the King has come. The last group of people I just want to say something to, maybe you are here this morning and, and your disposition towards all of this is, is say, actually, I'm one of the folks that I'm here this morning because it's Christmas time and I really enjoy Christmas songs. Man, me too. I love Christmas songs. Maybe you like to come to church around this time of year because you enjoy seeing the church decorated. Maybe you're in town to visit with family and you came to church. Great, we're so thankful that you're here. I want to invite you to consider what it means to celebrate Christmas as a member of the kingdom of King Jesus. The, the Christmas trees and the presents, and all those things, they're, they're nice things. They're not bad things. They're not wicked things. Don't hear me saying that. What I'm saying is there is something infinitely better to celebrate. Christ has come. He has come, by the way, to bring you into his kingdom. He has come to invite you into the kingdom that has no end. If you're here this morning, I'm just gonna tell you that we're gonna have Pastor Gary's gonna be up front. If, if there's anyone, that you, anyone here that would like to just talk to someone and say, I wanna know more about what it means to be a part of Jesus's kingdom, then we wanna invite you to come and have that conversation this morning. Let's pray together. Father God, we love you. We thank you for your goodness to us. Lord God, we ask you this morning that you would be gracious to us. Father, I pray for the believers who are gathered here this morning, for those who by grace can call ourselves members of your kingdom and who in your goodness to us can call ourselves members of First Baptist New Orleans. Father, let us celebrate Christmas in a way 
that honors and directs us towards the true celebration of this time of year. Father God, it's easy for us to put priority on cultural things. And Father, I thank you for the common grace of cultural traditions that allow us to spend time with family and do things that we enjoy. I thank you for the material blessings that you give us. But Father, I pray that in grace, you would not let it distract from the real celebration that we have, not this, just this time of year, but always. We are members of your kingdom. Pray, Father God, that through your spirit, through your word, you would bind us to this celebration. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.